0: It was the quality that led me into aviation in the first place. It was a love of the air and the sky and flying, the lure of adventure, the appreciation of beauty. It lay beyond the descriptive words of man, where immortality is touched through danger, where life meets death on equal plane, where man is more than man, and existence both supreme and valueless at the same instance. This was Charles Lindbergh, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Charles Lindbergh was born 4th of February 1902 in Detroit, Michigan. He was the only child of Charles August Lindbergh and Evangeline Lodge Land Lindbergh. He did have three oldest half-sisters, Lillian, Edith, and Eva, His parents separated in 1909 when Lindbergh was just seven. His father was a U.S. congressman from 1907 until 1917. He was one of a few congressmen to be against and opposed to the U.S. entering World War I. Lindbergh's mother was a chemistry teacher. Lindbergh attended more than a dozen schools and graduated June 5, 1918. He then enrolled in College of Engineering at the University of Wisconsin-Madison but soon dropped out. So from an early age, Lindbergh was interested in mechanics, especially mechanics of motorized transportation, such as his family's Saxon Six, and later his Excelsior motorbike. In February, 1922, he dropped out again and enrolled in Nebraska Aircraft Corporation Flying School. His first flight happened April 9th as a passenger in a biplane Lincoln Standard Turbate And was trained by pilot Otto Tim. Just days later he took his first formal flying lesson in the same plane but was never allowed solo because he couldn't afford the damage bond. So to gain experience and earn some money, Lindbergh left the flying school in the June and went across Nebraska, Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming and Montana to do barnstorming which is a stunt piloting for what were called flying circuses. His stunt of choice was wing walking and parachutist. He also worked as an airplane mechanic in Montana. Winter would come and this would make flying near possible. So Lindbergh went back to his father's home in Minnesota. It wasn't until 1923 that he returned to the air at Ciderfield, Georgia. Here he bought a World War I Jenny plane. He bought the plane for $500 and made his first solo flight in it. He spent a week practicing and then took off for Montgomery in Alabama, his first solo cross-country flight. For the rest of 1923, he did barnstorming under the name Daredevil Lindbergh. While barnstorming in Wisconsin, he on two occasions flew a local doctor across the Wisconsin River to emergency calls that without him were unreachable due to floods, landing at the time wasn't the strongest. He broke his propeller multiple times while landing, and on June 3, 1923, he ended up in a ditch in Minnesota, grinding him for a week. This accident happened while his father was a passenger, going to a campaign stop as he was running for the U.S. Senate. In the October, Lindbergh flew his Jenny to Iowa. He sold the plane here to a flying student. He then went back to flying school for more training. He joined Leon Klink and continued to barnstorm in the site in Klink's Curtis JN4C or Canuck, a Canadian version of the Jenny. Lindbergh busted this aircraft too when his engine failed after a takeoff, but he managed to fix the damages. The two pilots parts away a month later and Lindbergh reported to Brooksfield, March 19, 1924, to start a year flight training with the US Army Air Service. March 5, 1925 was the day of his most serious flying accident. Just eight days before graduation, a mid-air collision happened with another Army SE-5 during an aerial combat manoeuvre, which forced Lindbergh to bail out Of the 104 cadets that began the training, only 18 graduated. Lindbergh graduated first overall in his class March 1925. This earned him his Army pilot's wing and a commission as second lieutenant in the Air Service Reserve Corps. At the time, the Army didn't need active duty pilots. So after he graduated, he went back to barnstorming and a flight instructor. While as a reserve officer, he did do part time military flying by joining the 110th Observation Squadron. December 7, 1925, he was promoted to first lieutenant, and in July 1926, he was promoted to captain. October 1925, Limber was hired by the Robertson Aircraft Corporation, or RAC to first lay out and then serve as chief pilot for the newly designated 278-mile contract air mail route number two, or CAM-2. This provided service between St. Louis and Chicago. Lindbergh, Philip Love, Thomas Nelson, and Harlan Bud Gurney flew the mail CAM-2 in a fleet of four modified war surplus DH 4 biplanes. Before signing on for CAM, Lindbergh applied for the Richard E. Byrd's North Pole Expedition, but this a- application came in too late to be accepted. April 13, 1926, Lindbergh executed the US Post Office Department's oath of mail messengers. Two days later, he opened service on the new route. The job came with risks. On two occasions, a mix of bad weather, equipment failure, and fuel exhaustion forced Lindbergh to bail out on the night approach to Chicago. On both occasions, he hit the ground without serious injuries. Once he was cleared medically, he immediately made sure to check his cargo and get it to its destination with minimum delay. Mid-February 1927, Lindbergh left to oversee design and construction of the Spirit of St. Louis. The Spirit of St. Louis was a custom-built single-engine, single-seat, high-wing monoplane. The world's first non-stop transatlantic flight was made by British aviators John Alcock and Arthur White-Brown on June 14, 1919, in a modified vickers vinny four bomber. They flew from St. John's, Newfoundland, arriving in Ireland the next day. At the same time, French-born New York hotelier Raymond Ortig was approached by Augustus Post, who was secretary of the Aero Club in America. He was putting up a 25000 award for the first successful non-stop transatlantic flight from New York to Paris or the other way around within the next five years. This though didn't happen so it was renewed for another five years. This time I caught more attention of men well-known, highly experienced and well-backed attenders, but all failed. September 21st 1926 World War One French re- flying race re- René Fannoch crashed his Skilkoski Taking off from Roosevelt Field, April 26, 1927, naval aviators Noel Davis and Statham Wooster were killed at Langley Field while testing their Keystone Pathfinder. May 8, French war hero Charles Nungesker and Francois Colli took off from Paris in the seaplane Leosel Blanc. They disappeared somewhere in the Atlantic last being seen crossing the west coast of Ireland. American air racer Clarence Chamberlain Chamberlain and Arctic explorer Richard E. Byrd were also involved in this transatlantic race. Financing such an operation was challenging for Lindenburg, but two St. Louis businessmen eventually obtained a $15,000 bank loan Lindbergh gave $2,000 of his own money, and the RAC donated $1,000. This gave a total of $18,000 and was far less than what was available to his rivals. The new group went looking for a plane. They tried Wright Aeronautic, Travel Air and Columbia Aircraft Corporation, but all wanted to choose their pilot as part of the sale. Finally, a small company, Ryan Aircraft in San Diego, agreed to design and build a custom monoplane costing $10,600. This deal was formally closed on February 25th. It would be called the Spirit of St. Louis. It was fabric covered, single seat, single engine, Ryan NYP or New York Paris. It was a high wing monoplane with cab registration of NX211 and was designed by Lindeberg and Donald A. Hall, who was Ryan's chief engineer. Just two months later, the spirit flew for the first time. After multiple test flights, Lindeberg took off May 10th to St. Louis and then to Roosevelt Field, Long Island, New York so here we go friday may 20th 1927 lindenburg took off early that morning from roosevelt field long island the monoplane was stocked with 450 gallons of fuel that was strained over and over to make sure the fuel line was not blocked the loaded plane weighed altogether 2.7 tons and it took off on a dreary morning that had the runway rain soaked and muddied the monoplane was powered by a Wright whirlwind radial engine and was very slow in its takeoff at 7.52 a.m., but it did clear the telephone lines at the end of the field, although it just cleared it by 20 feet. For 33 and a half hours, Lindbergh and the Spirit fought many issues. They skimmed over storm clouds at 10,000 feet and kissed wave tops as low as 10 feet. They fought ice, flew blind in thick fog, and Lindenberg navigated all this by dead reckoning. So no radio navigation as Lindbergh felt the gear was too heavy and unreliable. Lindbergh was lucky with the winds as they were canceling each other out over the Atlantic, given zero drifts, so this gave an accurate navigation in this long flight. Saturday, May, 21st, Lindenberg arrived at Lee Bogart Aerodrome at 10:22 p.m. The airfield wasn't marked, and at first Lindenberg thought it was a large industrial complex because the bright lights all over it in every direction for miles and miles. This wasn't an industrial complex. It was actually tens of thousands of headlights from spectators cars stuck in what would be known as the largest traffic jam in Paris history, all to get a glimpse of Lynn Bird's landing. The crowd thought to be 150,000 stormed the fields after the landing, dragging Lynn Burr out from the cockpit. They then carried him above their heads, cheering for nearly 30 minutes. During the huge excitement, the spirit was damaged, in particular the fine lining and silver painted fabric covering on the fuselage. This damage is believed to have been done by souvenir hunters. Eventually the pilot and the plane got to safety in a nearby hangar with the help from French military, soldiers and police. Lynn Bird's flight was certified by the National Aeronautic Association Based on the readings from a sealed barograph from the Spirit. From the historic flight, Lindbergh gained huge praise and instant fame. People were noted to have, quote, behaved as though Lindbergh had walked on water, not flown over it. End quote. Back in Detroit, his mother's home was engulfed with more than a thousand people. Newspapers, magazines, and radio all wanted to talk to the now legend Lindbergh. Companies wanted him to, offering jobs upon jobs. The American flag was flown at the French Foreign Office. Lindbergh flew the spear to Belgium and Great Britain before returning to the US. Before he left, the the French president, Dua awarded Lindbergh with the French Legion d'Honneur. The Navy cruiser USS Memphis, a fleet of warships and multiple military aircraft, escor- escorted Lindbergh of Potomac River to Washington Navy Yard on June 11, 1927. Here, the US President Coolidge awarded Lindbergh the distinct, Distinguished Flying Cross The U.S. Post Office Department issued a 10 cent mail stamp illustrating the spirit and a map of the flight. June 13th, Lindbergh flew from Washington to New York City. He then travelled up Canyon of Heroes to City Hall, where he met Mayor Walker. Next, a ticker tape parade followed on to Central Park Mall, where he was honoured at another ceremony hosted by New York Governor Smith with 200,000 people in attendance. Four million people saw Lindbergh that day. In the evening, he and his mother, along with Mayor Walker, went to a banquet and a dance at Clarence Mackey's to honour him. The next night, Lindbergh was honoured at a grand banquet given by the Mayor's Committee on Reception of the City of New York, with 3,700 people attending. July 18, 1927, Lindbergh was promoted to colonel in the Air Corps. December 14, 1927, a special act of Congress awarded Lindbergh the Medal of Honor, usually given to heroes in combat. Giving it to Lindbergh came with criticism. March 21, 1928, it was presented to him at the White House by President Coolidge. Lindenberg was times magazine person of the year appearing on the cover january 2nd 1928 he was just 25 years old he was the youngest times person of the year until greta Thunberg in 2019. just two months after lindbergh arrives in paris gp putnam's sons published a 318 page autobiographer entitled we or we which was one of 15 books he wrote or contributed to. The company was run by G.P. Putnam, who was very interested in all things aviation and was the husband to the female pilot Amelia Earhart. Lindbergh wanted to share his story and what he thought about the future of aviation. The entitled We was taught to refer to the partnership between Lindbergh and Spirit in the darkest hours of the flight, although Putnam would allude it was alluded to that it was between Lindbergh and his St. Louis financial backers. Soon we was translated into the major languages and in the first year sold over 650,000 copies. This had Lindbergh earn over a quarter of a million dollars. The success of the book was helped by a three-month tour of the U.S. with Lindbergh in the Spirit. From July to October 1927, Lindbergh visited 82 cities in all 48 states. He gave 147 speeches a rode in over 2,000 kilometers of parades and was seen by more than 30 million Americans. He then toured 16 Latin American countries from December 1927 until February 1928 in what was called the Goodwill Tour. A Lindbergh boom in aviation began. Mail moving by air increased dramatically. Applications for pilot license tripled and the amount of planes quadrupled. President Hoover appointed Lindbergh to the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Lindbergh and Juan Tripp who was head of Pan American World Airways were interested in developing what was called a great circle air route across Alaska and Serbia to China and Japan. Summer 1931, with trips help, Lindbergh and his wife flew from Alaska to Serbia, Japan, and China. The route didn't become available until after World War II as the aircrafts before the war lacked the range to fly Alaska to Japan non-stop. Also, the US didn't officially recognize the Soviet government. While in China, the Lindbers volunteered to help with efforts in the Central China Flood of 1931. Lindbergh used his new fame to promote air mail service taking thousands of self-addressed souvenir covers all over the world. The covers were then back stamped and returned to the sender as promotion of the air mail service. Anne Marrow Lindbergh was Charles Lindbergh's wife. She was daughter to Dwight Marrow who was partner at J- JP & Co. He acted as financial advisor to the Lindberghs. Morrow was also U.S. ambassador to Mexico in 1927. The couple married May 27, 1929. They had six children together. Wanting to share his passion, Lindbergh taught Anne to fly, and she went with him on most of his explorations and charting of air routes. Lindbergh was rarely home due to work only seeing his kids a few months of the year but he had his hand on the pulse of the family knowing his kids rule breaking and having Anne track each and every penny of the household expenses in account books in 1932 a horrific tragedy would happen to the Lindbergh family i'm only going to briefly touch on this as my next episode is about this, this tragedy but on march 1st, 1932 Charles August Lindbergh Jr. was 20 months old. He was taken from his crib that evening. A man claiming to be the kidnapper picked up a ransom of $50,000 on April 2nd. The ransom had part gold certificates in it. Sadly, on May 12th, the body of a child was found in the woods close to the home. The crime would become known as the crime of the century. From it, Congress passed the Lindbergh Law making kidnapping a federal offence if the victim is taken across state lines. A German immigrant called Richard Hampton was arrested after paying for gas with some of the ransom money. Evidence would be found at his home including $13,000 of the ransom money. Hoffman went on trial January 2nd, 1935. He was convicted February 13th and electrocuted April 3, 1936. From this, the intensely private Lindbergh became fed up with being in the limelight. He grew concerned over his other children's safety. On the early hours of December 22, 1935, the family sailed from Manhattan to Liverpool. They were the only passengers on the US Line SS American Importer. They travelled under false names with diplomatic passports. December 23rd, a full day later, the Lindbergh Dash to Europe became public. On December 31st, the family arrived in Liverpool. They departed and stayed with relatives. They then rented a home in Kent and in 1938 moved to France. They briefly visited the US in December 1937 traveled extensively in Europe until April 1939, when they returned to the U.S. renting a seaside estate at Lloyd Neck. The return to the U.S. came from a personal request by General H.H. Arnold, who was chief of the U.S. Army Corp, where Lindbergh was a reserve colonel. Arnold asked Lindbergh to accept temporary return to active duty, to help evaluate the Air Corps readiness for war. His jobs included evaluating new aircraft in development, recruitment procedures, and locating a site for new Air Force research. Lindbergh would do a four tour, his first since graduating 14 years ago in 1925. Lindbergh had his hands in scientific interests. He wrote to Longin's Watch Company. He would describe a watch making navigation easier for pilots. It was produced in 1931 and is still produced today. In 1929, he became interested in Robert Goddard's rocket work. Throughout his life, Lindbergh was a key advocate of Goddard's work. In 1930, Lindbergh's sister in law developed a fatal heart condition. Lindbergh became interested in the heart and how sometimes surgery couldn't repair the problem. Lindbergh began to study perfusion of organs outside the body. He worked with Nobel Prize winner, French surgeon Alexis Carrel. Lindbergh would invent a glass perfusion pump, later named Model T, and it's credited with making future heart surgeries possible. Years of further development by others of the machine led to the construction of the first heart-lung machine. The US military requested Lindbergh to travel to Germany multiple times from 1936 to 1938 to look into German aviation. Hannah Reichs would show him the Fork Wolf FW-61 in 1937. He was also the first American to examine the newest German bomber Junkers, Ju-88, and was allowed to pilot the fighter aircraft Messerschmitt Bf 109, which impressed him with its excellent performance. Some though wondered on Lindbergh's accuracy on what he reported, but the info he gave was useful. In 1938, the American ambassador to Germany held a dinner for Lindbergh with Germany's chief, Göring. At the dinner, Göring presented Lindbergh with the Commander Cross of the Order of the German Eagle. Lindbergh accepted, which came with controversy, as just weeks later the night of the broken glass happened. Lindbergh would give the medal; wouldn't give the medal back, seeing it as an unnecessary insult. In 1938, Lindbergh was invited to inspect the Nazi Germany Air Force. Lindbergh was in awe of the German technology and the huge number of aircrafts they had. Add to this the massive debts from World War I, Lindbergh came to the thinking the US should not enter the looming European war. In 1938, Lindbergh suggested to the French that the Luftwaffe had 8,000 aircraft and had the ability to make 1,500 per month. This swayed France to try to avoid conflict with Nazi Germany through the Munich Agreement. The US ambassador to Britain, Joseph Kennedy, asked Lindbergh to write a secret memo to the British, warning that a military response violates the Munich Agreement, and that would be disastrous. He'd indicate France's military was weak and British too reliant on the Navy. Lindbergh put forward the idea to strengthen air power to force Hitler's aggression against Asiatic communi- Communism. August 1939, Albert Einstein, a friend of Lindbergh, personally chose Lindbergh to deliver the Einstein sillard letter to President Roosevelt, alerting him about the potential of nuclear fission. But Lindbergh didn't, res- didn't respond to Einstein's request. Instead, two days later, Lindbergh gave a nationwide address. In it, he called for isolationism and indicated some pro-Germany sympathies. From this, Leo, Leo Szilard told Einstein that Lindbergh was not our man. October 1939, hostiles broke out between Britain and Germany. A month after Canada declared war on Germany, Lindbergh gave another radio speech blaming Canada for taking the Western Hemisphere into conflict. November 1939, Lindbergh wrote a controversial article in Reader's Digest. In it, he deplored the war, but said that Germany needed to go on the assault against the Soviet Union. Late 1940, Lindbergh became spokesman of the non-interventionist American First Committee. He spoke to crowds and crowds of people with millions listening by radio. April 1941, he debated the 30,000 members of the American First Committee. He said quote, "The British government has one last desperate plan. To persuade us to send another American expeditionary force to Europe, and to share with England militarily, as well as financially, the fiasco of this war." End quote. In 1941, he gave testimony before the House Committee on Foreign Affairs opposing the Lend-Lease Bill. He urged the US to negotiate a neutrality pact with Germany. President Roosevelt publicly said Lindbergh's views are that of a defeatist and a peacer. Lindbergh resigned as colonel, writing he saw, quote, no honourable alternative, end quote, with Roosevelt calling his loyalty out in public. At an American First rally in September, he would accuse three groups of pressing the country towards the war. The three groups he named were the British the Jewish and Roosevelt's administration. The meshes was popular in the North and Midwest, but the site were pro-British. Lindbergh planned to move to Berlin for the winter of 1938, 1939. He found a home, but his Nazi friends advised him against it as it once was owned by a Jew. Instead, they told him to speak to Albert Speer, a German architect who said he would build Lindbergh a house anywhere he wanted. From his diaries at the time, Lindbergh wrote, We must limit to a reasonable amount the Jewish influence. Whenever the Jewish percentage of total population becomes too high, a reaction seems to invariably occur. It is too bad because a few Jews of the right type are, I believe, an asset to any country. End quote. Lindbergh was anti-communism and disconnected to e- many Americans. He also believed in eugenics and Nordicism. His speeches and writings would reflect his reviews on race, religions and eugenics which were very simply to that of the Nazis. This led speculations that Lindbergh was a Nazi sympathiser but in a speech in September 1941 Lindbergh would say quote no person with a sense of the dignity of mankind can condone the persecution of the Jew race in germany End quote this gave the sense he wasn't a sympathizer so he kind of flip-flopped in his views either way roosevelt did not like or trust lindbergh he once said to the treasury secretary quote if I should die tomorrow, I want you to know this. I am absolutely convinced Lindbergh is a Nazi. End quote. Lindbergh had a long term friendship with Henry Ford of the Ford Motor Company. He also is well known for his anti Semitic newspaper, The Dearborn Independent. Ford has been quoted by the FBI field officers saying, quote, When Charles comes out here, we only talk about the Jews. End quote. Lindbergh always admired Germany's genius in science and their organizational ability. He admired England's government and commerce, and admired France's living and understanding of life. He believed if America blended all these qualities together, they would be the greatest power of all. Max Wallace, journalist investigator and author of the American Axis, agreed with Roosevelt that Lindenburg was pro-Nazi, but the accusation of dual loyalty or treason, he didn't find it warranted. Wallace thought Lindbergh meant well, but a bigot and misguided Nazi sympathiser. Lindbergh's biographer, A. Scott Berg, said Lindbergh wasn't so much a supporter but more a man stuck in his ways stubborn and inexperienced in the political world which had him easily manipulated by his rivals that had him appear as a Nazi supporter. When Lindbergh received the Order of the German Eagle on behalf of Hitler it was actually approved by the US Embassy The abort only became an issue once World War II began. In 1939, Lindbergh was back in the US to spread his message of non-intervention. Berg would say Lindbergh's views were actually common in the US, especially in the interwar era. Berg explained before the war, Lindbergh believed the great battle would be Soviets against Germans. Wallace would note that eugenics remained one of Lindbergh's enduring passions. Lindbergh always was behind military strength. He believed having a strong defensive war machine would have America an ironclad fortress. Berg noted although Lindbergh was shocked by Pearl Harbor, he did believe America invited brutal war. After Pearl Harbor, Lindbergh sought back into the US Army Air Force, but was told no. so he went elsewhere approaching aviation companies offering to consult. 1942 he was a technical advisor with Ford. He then joined United Aircraft in 1943 as an engineering consultant. In 1944, he persuaded United Aircraft to send him as a technical representative to the Pacific Theatre to study aircraft performance and combat conditions. May 21, 1944, Lindbergh flew his first combat mission. In his six months in the Pacific, Lindbergh took part in the fighter-bomber raids, flying 50 combat missions all as a civilian. He impressed General MacArthur with his innovations. Lindbergh introduced engine leaning techniques to P-38 pilots. This improved fuel consumption at cruise speeds. The U.S. Marine and Army Air Force pilots who served with Lindbergh all praised him for his courage and patrioticism after the war, he toured Nazi concentration camps, noting in his aug- uh, autobiography that he was disgusted and angered by what he saw. Lindbergh went to live in Darinen, Connecticut after World War II. He served as a consultant to Chief of Staff of the US Air Force and to Pan America World, Air- World Airways. April 17, 1954, President Eisenhower commissioned Lindbergh as a brigadier general in the US Air Force Reserve. He also was a congressional advisory panel, which recommended the site of the US Air Force Academy. December 1968, he visited the Apollo 8 crew the day before they launched, and in 1969, he was honored to watch the launch of the Apollo 11. Lindbergh was a great in uh, aviation, questionable in views, and had a double life to add to it. In one thousand, nine hundred and fifty-seven, he began an affair with three women while he was married to Anne. He had three children with Bridget Heismayer, a hat maker in Göttersheim. He had two children with Bridget's sister Mariette, who was a painter in Grimmacht. And he had another two with Valeska, an East Parisian aristocrat in Baden Baden. All of these secret children were born between 1958 and ni- uh, 1967. Ten days before Lindbergh died, he wrote to each mistress, pleading to keep the secret even after he died. They all kept the secret, even from the children, who didn't know it at the time. Who their father actually was. They only knew he was called Carew Kent and they would meet him once, maybe twice a year. But Bridget's daughter, Astrid, discovered photos, love letters signed by Lindbergh to her mother. Out of respect, maybe, Astrid waited until after her mother and Anne Lindbergh died to make her findings public. In 2003, DNA tests confirmed Lindbergh was the father of Astrid and her two siblings. In his golden years, Lindbergh was heavily involved in con- conservation movements. He was very concerned how new technology was impacting the natural world, especially Hawaii. He campaigned to protect many endangered species. These species included humpback whales, blue whales, Philippine eagles, and turmeral. He helped establish the Haleakala National Park in Hawaii. Lynn Bird's speeches and writings later in life focus on technology and nature believe in, quote, all the achievements of mankind have value only to the extent that they preserve and improve the quality of life. End quote. Charles Lindbergh died in Hawaii of lymphoma at age 72 on August 26th, 1974. Thank you all for listening. Next time I'll be looking at the Lindbergh kidnapping. On the evening of March 1st, 1932, 21 old Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was abducted from his crib. The child of aviators Charles Lindbergh and Anne Moreau Lindbergh. His body was discovered by a truck driver on the side of the road nearby on May 12th. It would become known as the crime of the century and then the trial of the century with the Limber law being passed making kidnapping a federal crime over state lines. Until then this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.